Welcome back to the Zero Hour by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. Yes, and today we are talking with Evelyn D'Souza. She has a really amazing journey of how she became to be a cybersecurity expert in Silicon Valley, and she's starting her own startup. Yes, very unexpected routes, not not the typical path, well worth the listen. Um, and also very interested in how she views data privacy um, as a, the commodity of the future and what we can do to protect ourselves, but also um, with her startup, trying to close the cybersecurity gap for small to medium-sized businesses that may not be able to afford enterprise-level um, layers of security despite being the essentially most attacked uh, size um, company in across most industries. So uh, without further ado, we present Evelyn D'Souza. Welcome back. My guest today is Evelyn D'Souza. She is on our board of advisors and a longtime security professional. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be a guest. All right. So why don't we um, get started with a little bit uh, of a maybe a bridged autobiography. Um, I know you were at Cisco and, and our research um, sort of saw that you didn't have the, the typical sort of IT college education. So we're just very interested in, in understanding how you came up in uh, the field of technology and then by way of that extension into uh, cloud security and privacy. So I'm going to be honest and tell you that it was an accident. So 17 years ago, I was a music teacher in Australia. And I was here on vacation and everyone kept telling me that I needed to go to an event of some sort in Silicon Valley because I really didn't quite understand the concept of Silicon Valley. I was expecting it to be a, a geographical distinction versus a cultural one. So I went to what was called a brass ring event, which really was just my means a way to get educated. And at that point, I was a music teacher in Australia. And I had a long distance relationship where I was going back and forth between the Valley and Melbourne, Australia, um, because my boyfriend at the time was here. That is some serious whole, long distance. It is, you know, and the whole time that that was happening, I never wanted to move here. But after the Brass Ring event, a recruiter there convinced me that, you know, I really should apply for a job, I, you know, more than going around and learning about the companies that, you know, this might be the ideal time to consider something different. And because when I went home that evening, you know, my boyfriend and my brother who was an engineer here and everyone actually knew me, thought that that was such a remote possibility. And they were right, you know, that these visas that were being used to sponsor overseas professionals were, were largely reserved for engineers, not someone wanting to make a career transition. But faced with that challenge, and I love insurmountable challenges, it's been sort of a distinction in my career. Um, I decided that, you know, and I had a bit of a bee in my bonnet. I decided I wanted one of those visas, was going to demonstrate just how the skills that I had as a music teacher were transferable to a role in technology. And I was very lucky that someone believed in me and my first role 
in IT was at Trend Micro here in the Valley. And after that, I was addicted to the world of security and privacy and compliance. That is quite the journey. Um, you know, I think that that logical leap is probably not um, as big for anyone who actually knows what teachers have to go through and what they do on a day-to-day basis. But yes, the I think the ability to impart knowledge or to analyze how somebody learns something is easily transferable to marketing or product evangelism or somewhere where you're working with large groups of people and trying to, to communicate across um, several different ideas at once. Absolutely. And you know what's really interesting, George, is I think today we often talk about, you know, wanting more diversity in, you know, in IT. And I think sometimes the ability to conceive of things in a different way to, you know, put yourself in someone else's shoes. Often what I find with um, is, you know, that there's some really brilliant ideas, but they're often from the view of a security practitioner, not for the um, end user who's going to apply it particularly so in consumer security. And that's where I think having people from diverse backgrounds can be incredibly helpful and valuable. Yes. I mean, we'll, we'll get to this, I'm sure because it's in the zeitgeist, but, you know, given the uh, privacy lapses at Facebook and um, several other uh, companies, I, I think it's pretty clear to say that when designing purely from a product perspective, um, that there can be some serious gaps um, in understanding, okay, what does the product do, but then how does it use the information that it's processing and and so forth. So yes, we we wholeheartedly agree on on a need for diverse perspectives, whether that diversity cuts across um, gender lines or just even backgrounds. So in your time uh, at Trend Micro, uh, I guess, you know, several years pass and then we, we move on. How did you get um, into cloud technology specifically? So um, I had developed at McAfee, um, I'd been leading their policy compliance um, efforts, both for their product marketing, but also internally in terms of developing a harmonized framework. And the Cloud Security Alliance had a call for someone to do something similar and lead a similar effort. And that just felt like such a natural fit. And that was my first foray into cloud um, from a compliance policy perspective. And after that, I was hooked because I realized we call cloud practically everything. Yes, that's actually a a great point. So um, we are curious in um, trying to define where we work uh, vis-a-vis what we call social and digital channels. And that's sort of broad by design, right? Because you have enterprise apps like Salesforce and um, then you have collaboration networks like Slack. And then, uh, and so we're just trying to find a label. And it also seems that we don't refer to social media um, as a cloud application, but essentially most everything anyone is using. I mean, what was, when was the last time anyone locally installed anything? Right. So I'm curious as to your opinion about, um, the definition of cloud now, because I remember when it was first 
bandied about. It was essentially uh, a proxy for data storage, right? Cloud was just a, a new yes. convenient way to store information without me building my own data center. But now it, it feels like cloud encompasses so much more. You know, George, I couldn't agree more with you. I feel like we use uh, cloud, the term very amorphously to describe everything from where, you know, you're um, able to not own infrastructure, but you control the back end infrastructure as in the data storage model you mentioned and you discussed um, to where, you know, you're running applications and where, you know, everything may be transacted so to speak, in the cloud, but you really have no control of that back-end infrastructure. And I do think there needs to be a distinction that's made from a few reasons. One is that, you know, if you're a security practitioner or if you're an IT person, the way that you would approach protection is vastly different for something where you have control of the back-end infrastructure versus where you don't and all you do is have control of the data that is being sent or transmitted from one application uh, to another or one application to a user. Um, so that's one reason why I think it matters. But then also secondarily from a consumer perspective, because I think that term is very confusing when it's uh, for, uh, for users when you know when, when the protection that they would be looking at or what they control or how they're able to access it is fundamentally different from an infrastructure as a service perspective versus these applications, the SaaS-based applications like Slack or the social media applications. Um, and I don't know whether we just need to call that SaaS more specifically um, versus infrastructure as a service or just you know, fundamentally look at making greater distinctions between different cloud models. Yes. And that's, that's a great point because, you know, when, when Facebook first came about, um, it first became, it was, it was spreading as I uh, graduated college. Um, that's where it sort of went outside of Harvard and they were just sending it to people with .edu email addresses. And at that time, um, 2005, obviously before the smartphone, that was just completely site-based. It felt like it was a website that you were interacting with. And then as we move into the app economy, um, app seems to be both appropriate because that's what it is on a phone, but it also seems to obscure what you'd been saying, which is uh, the transmission of data. So you tend to think of app as a thing that you do quote unquote locally install on your phone, but you're not thinking about the data exchange is actually going into an entire infrastructure that you have no control over and really no, uh, visibility into. And I think that's probably the reckoning that really, um, got kicked off with Cambridge Analytica. I think people began to realize, oh, right. This isn't just a UI I interact with, but this is an exchange of information and that, that trust has been violated. And actually I have no idea what's being done with my data. You know, it's a funny thing because you're right. The, the Cambridge Analytica was a, a waking up moment for, for many people who'd not considered, you know, that 
the use of some of these social media services, uh, which was at no cost to them, you know, met no cost in return for something, their data. But that was not something that everyone had reasoned and reckoned on. And it's very interesting when I look at people in my parents' generation who were not born onto computers and even those who were born into this generation that, you know, they may, it may not always be readily apparent to them that they think that their data might sit on the actual device. They think if they've lost the device, right. even though they might be backing things up to a cloud, I don't think that that is something that, you know, has been natural in everyone's learning. Absolutely. I think it's, uh, unless you grew up in a certain time, you tend to think of storage as a, as a physical act, right? So I'm data storage is a, is a bucket somewhere that holds something. Um, but not really making the leap from the abstract to the concrete, which is that bucket is uh, a data center, you know, many, many thousands of miles away. Um, I wanted to return to what you had uh, just uh, talked about briefly as to whether we need to redefine cloud or SaaS or, and I know that while you were at Cisco, you had uh, developed the cloud data protection certification, right? This is like this uh, gold standard for cloud providers. Um, That's all well and good for, for Cisco as a, as a, an idea and a piece of thought leadership, but I was wondering if the thinking behind that might now apply to um, these app providers, the the Slacks, the Facebooks, even the Instagrams, the WhatsApps. Is there, do you see a need for like a broad-based industry consensus to set a standard in um, privacy and security protocols? Because to date, it seems um, it's just a, a competition uh, individually who has the best features. You know, George, I think that's a, a great idea. So when I had done that model back at Cisco, it was released in a vendor agnostic way through the Cloud Security Alliance. Um, and it was a very basic set of tiering, which was largely based at infrastructure as a service providers um, and set some very basic tiering in place. But I actually think that very basic tiering is needed now in the world of you know, these SaaS providers. And what's very interesting is that um, there is, there are, you know, a number of different industry entities that have sought to propose something, but it always feels like that they're either it's their affiliation with, you know, um, or it's their um, vested interest in something that might prevent widespread adoption. And today, when I look at some of the regulatory efforts that are abound, that are abroad, you know, everything from GDPR to the upcoming California privacy regulation to even uh, federal proposed regulation, we don't see that as part of it. And I actually think it's a fundamental step. Mm. What's really interesting is that the technology has long existed to make this a very practical and easy thing to implement. Yeah, well, I think we've been we've been down that road before where, you know, the auto industry um has long had uh the ability to refine 
uh, mileage and, um, you know, that, uh, famous documentary who killed the electric car. I mean, technology and development is rarely the impediment. It's, it's usually yes. interest that is the impediment. <laughs> um, cool. So why don't we, uh, we can, uh, take a step back from the past and, uh, we're curious to understand, uh, what you're up to now. So I view what I'm doing right now, which is um, I'm in the process, very early stages of launching my own startup, Virtuosa.ai, which was fundamentally come about uh, from my learnings at Trend Micro through McAfee, through Cisco, um, and some of the startups that I was able to work at through my more recent uh, last year and a half of consulting, where I've noticed that there is a huge underserved and overlooked segment and that is a small to medium um, market and when I talk about that I'm really looking at companies that are less than 99 users. Before I go into what I am doing exactly may I share an interesting statistic with you? Yes let's do it yeah. So nearly half of those businesses so there's something like 28 million of those versus 18,500 large businesses in the United States. Just to give you an example of the number of small businesses and the number of people working for those small businesses would equate to the entire population of the UK, of the UK and France or UK and Italy together. So we're not talking about some sort of small segment of the population, but of those 28 um, million SMBs, roughly half of those that are attacked, and unfortunately we don't have a, an exact accurate statistic of the numbers of those who are attacked, end up going out of business. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, I think this was a, a major talking point during the uh, financial crisis, which was here we are bailing out these organizations that are considered quote unquote too big to fail when a lot of economists were arguing that the reality is it's the it's the small to medium businesses that really drive the economy in terms of proportion of um employees and then for example if you take a local uh HVAC uh company here in Charlottesville i know they employ like 50 uh, repair personnel, but those 50 repair personnel live and work directly in this town. So the, the economic flow of the paycheck back into the taxes, back into this town is, is a far deeper impact than say the local target or, or Walmart. Um, and that was, uh, I believe in part, um, the justification for Obama's bailout of the, auto manufacturers. He wasn't necessarily worried about the, the GM. He was worried about all the mom and pop um, subcontractors that make, you know, brake pads. And if, if all of that chain fell apart, it would basically have gutted the Midwest in one fell blow. You know, it, I agree with you. I mean, you know, that the, um, the impact to the economy is, you know, something that's often what we call underrated or under-discussed, um, you know, overall. But if I may, I'm going to share a little bit more what I'm doing. Yes, let's do it. 
And um, so virtuoso.ai really aims to apply a different approach to cybersecurity and take some of these small to medium businesses and make any business user a cybersecurity hero. And so the way that I'm planning or we're planning to do that is to take cybersecurity domain expertise Combine it with natural language processing. So in the same way that you and I are having a conversation now, any business user could come to our website or via an app. It's, we're planning a Twitter and Slack integration, you know, along those social media apps that we discussed previously. Um and make it very accessible to small to business users um, to be able to, you know, understand their risk, be able for them to be able to more readily understand their risk and to be able to apply security protection in a much more business consumable way than it is today being currently given. I think for most small to medium businesses, firstly, they think it's never going to happen to them. They're not going to be attacked. But secondarily, even when they are worried about it, they're just confused about where do I start? What do all these terms mean? And importantly, how do they apply to me? That's what we're going to solve. So this is, if I'm uh, understanding correctly, it's a big attempt at bridging the, the gap in um, in education and knowledge, right? So, you know, there's, there's no one at JP Morgan Chase that doesn't understand the inherent risks, right? But you're saying the, the mom and pop outfit with 20 employees, they are probably well behind the curve and they think, well, as long as I don't open any weird email attachments, but so your, your, uh, startup is going to address that gap. Is that correct? Exactly. And one of the things we're going to do, we're not going to expect them to become masters in cybersecurity, but, you know, we're going to make it easy for them. So for someone who's running their own startup and they really don't need the hassle of having to dedicate extra cycles, we're going to help them offshore risk. Um, but at the same time, you know, stay on top of them and say, you know, have you backed up your files? You know, make sure that they've installed, um, you know, basic anti-malware, have some of those basic controls in place, but do so in a way which is automated, but and also educate them in a, in a risk in a way where they don't have to understand, you know, the security jargon and the complexity of it that exists today. So... You're a teacher again. Yes. All right. We like we like love to see things come full circle. Um, wow. I mean, we're oh, would be excited to to see that. I'd be excited to see that. Um, yeah. I think it's not much different when we're talking at the enterprise level as Safeguard Cyber. Um, that half of our role appears to be educating because sure you can talk to an IT risk professional um, and they they'll understand it from a technical perspective but they they may not know that you know the brand risk usually falls to the marketing department and um, having come from a marketing agency before I know for a fact that they are not talking about security in any way shape or form right so even as a vendor into enterprise it's it's education across circumstances, but it sounds like um, Virtuoso is going to be uh, geared towards empowering uh, individual business owners. 
It does. And, you know, it's funny because we're just just listening to you talk, you know, how you mentioned the challenge with um, social challenges, social media uh, channels and, you know, the, the maybe a lack of awareness within certain departments. I think part of it is that we've always propagated that security is owned by someone and it's not everyone's responsibility. Yes, absolutely. And I think the these digital channels have done uh, you know, for better or for worse, have really decentralized risk, right? So you can't dig the moat anymore uh, and be like the guard for the perimeter because everyone in the company has essentially a door into the network via their phone. And then how many apps is, are on each of those phones, et cetera. It just becomes exponentially decentralized and, uh, and, and more difficult. But yes, good point in terms of who owns quote unquote security. Um, great. And then I guess my next, uh, question is one that I ask a lot of our guests, um, since we're running around, uh, at the edge of security circles and, and, uh, at the leading edge of the industry, I like to ask, well, we'll start with the bad and then we'll work towards the good. Um, after, uh, a career in security, uh, and given all of what's going on presently, what scares you the most? So this might be an unexpected thing, but I really feel like, you know, today it's the privacy aspect. It feels like, you know, we're increasingly being tracked. So what's very interesting is I am reading articles about privacy brokers and or data brokers in newspapers, but yet those same newspapers are using so many um, uh, are tracking me, you know, on their website. And it just feels like uh, in so many ways we're uh, – the level of tracking is unprecedented. It's often, you know, we don't realize it until, you know, we get sent something online or something happens online that we realize that it's not just a mere coincidence that we got an advertisement for a flight to Spain or something like that, that, you know, someone was tracking us when we were on these sites. Um, so it's that level of tracking and as we enter into an age where we will have more digital connectedness than ever before, it's whether it will sort of, you know, render us less, you know, unique and make us feel sort of watched over all the time, essentially a prison. That's my biggest fear. Yeah. And I, I think so um, now that I don't work for that uh, global marketing agency anymore, I can fully admit that even though I um, worked on media campaigns for those same ads that would follow you, uh, I always had ad block enabled <laughs> because um, I wasn't willing to be shown those, those same ads. Um, so that's, that's my confession for today. Um, but uh, yes, I agree. I think it's not just, um, the level of creepiness or surveillance. Um, it is this sense of being commoditized, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm just a thing against which, uh, inventory is to be, uh, trafficked and measured. And, uh, it's just very unsatisfying. 
I think so. Okay, so I don't want to I don't want to sort of steer us into the the negative end of the pool. There's plenty of that in cybersecurity. So we flip the question and uh, want to ask, okay, what gives you the most hope? So it's conversely, it's the other opposite side of the coin that if we do privacy and security right, things like self-driving cars, you know, the opportunity to be able to stay in my live in my house much. So self-driving cars that, you know, as I get older or, you know, that it will enable an aging population to move around and, and to be much more independent. And also the ability, you know, to live in their houses much longer, but yet to be able to connect to help when they need them. I think that to me is is exciting. Um, and also this thing of smart cities. You know, I have to say that if we do it right, we protect people's data. I'm really excited about the connectedness that it will allow for communities, um, the social interaction, as well as the opportunity just to preserve the planet in a way that we haven't thought of or done before. Okay. That's, um, yes, I have, I have great hope for, for, um, connected infrastructure. And, um, I'm also very preoccupied with, you know, um, helping my parents be able to stay in, in their home as they age. Um, and we don't certainly have to solve the privacy question on this podcast, but you know, the, the typical counter argument to the, to the privacy question is that there is this trade off, um, for the exchange of free use has to be supported by, uh, ad revenue and ad revenue is of course more valuable if it is spent better, which has led us down this road of, um, you know, hyper contextualization and uh, detailed targeting as the result of our data. Um, so just back of the envelope thinking, um, have you had any interesting discussions or conversations about how do we how do we counter that argument? How do we build privacy into design in such a way as business models can continue to run efficiently without having to rely on the advertising revenue that seems to incentivize uh, data gathering. So it's so interesting you should ask that question. So one of the things that I've been playing with and it's since my days at Cisco is this idea that personal data is a currency of its own. You know, it's being traded, you know, by data brokers like Axiom and even by governments around the world for a while without, you know, in a way that we've not really talked about it that widely. But and but we often see when there are breaches, you know, what certain data sets do sell for on the uh, dark and deep web. So I think in the future, the opportunity is... Um, you know, we've talked about privacy by design in terms of, you know, what data is collected, you know, how privacy policies um, are implemented. But there's an opportunity to give users much more control over their data. By that, I mean that, you know, users could potentially have their own data vaults where they can personally choose to trade or share their data with certain parties in return for something. Ah, right. So we begin to value the data like, oh, I, George, find your service valuable enough that I am willing to trade 
my location, which is valued at X in exchange for, you know, X levels of service. Is that, is that the model? Yes. You know, and I think, you know, so we've often talked about how, you know, increasingly automation will erode certain sets of jobs. If we do move to this idea of universal basic income, I think that would be one way for people to supplement their incomes, but it would also give them the opportunity to say, well, you know, these are the sort of data aspects that, you know, I as an individual or I as the parent of these children that I have custody over feel comfortable sharing, but these are what, you know, are absolute and must remain, you know, undisclosed. Yeah. As a parent, I'm very protective of my children's data, um, not just their data, but also, you know, uh, I basically tell my friends they can't share photos of my children on the internet um, in, a, in a very draconian way. I have no way of enforcing that policy other than um, the currency that is my friendship <laughs> with them. Um, okay, well, but so- that's such a wonderful thing that you take those steps to do that because I often think of children who are entering the digital era and who already have a digital trail that their parents have created for them. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm just a naturally paranoid person. Um, but uh, okay, that is that is a brilliant idea. I'm really down with uh, privacy vaults and and data as currency because I think that does um, it situates the value of that data in a real economic context. But that is pretty future forward. So um, let me ask you a question that may have more import in the next one to five years, which is um, how do you think we can rethink how privacy is incorporated into, into design, you know, from a customer standpoint? So I, I ask this because yes. sometimes we are asked uh, why we are so keen to be quote unquote privacy first. So when we um, protect users for companies, they must opt in, right? We don't just, uh, uh, it's not a big brother sort of surveillance system that we build in. And we do that because it actually drives business. We have greater adoption rates in a workforce. Um, and uh, if people understand, again, coming back to education, why it is we want to monitor their communications. Hey, this is a way of us protecting you from either inadvertent compliance violations or uh, from malware, from malicious uh, links. So. So that's why we do it. I mean, there's actually a business imperative to do it. But um, for for other apps and businesses, um, have you given thought to how privacy can be incorporated in, into the design process? So one of the things I would love to see as an immediate, uh, fairly immediate thing is how, you know, privacy is communicated both to, in, in, to engineers as well as to um, end users. So today, uh, you know, if you will disclosure terms and agreements are typically longer than Shakespeare's The Tempest and more convoluted. And it's often on page 20 or 21 of those agreements. I, I definitely you know, 50- read through those. In, no, I don't. No, no <laughs> yes. one does. You just hit the accept button and move on. 
yeah, you almost have no choice to, otherwise you'd be there all day. Um, but for someone like me who's very curious to understand, you know, and I often find, you know, the real meat of what is being disclosed, you know, um, often it started with genetics companies, but now it's pretty much most anyone with an interest in collecting realms of customer data. You know, I often find it on page 20 exactly what's going to happen with that data. So one of the things that I think that would make, give everyone a higher comfort level, including, you know, engineers, is to to come up with a universal, uh, you know, set of icons. Oh, that, yes, like a, 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 let's build a Rosetta Stone, right? Like a, a yeah. agreed upon a visual uh, language. And I think that that would immediately make, you know, that would give everyone a much more clearer picture, you know, because I often think that we talk about building privacy by design into the engineering process and it becomes a sort of a very, you know, and, and there is a lot of merit into doing that. But I think going one step further and making, um, you know, those privacy agreements much more digestible to everyone and transparent would be the step that I think is needed, you know, very desperately. Yeah, that's, um, yes, another good idea. Um, that's a, yeah, that's a fascinating, well, I mean, maybe we'll take that, that into consideration for our own, uh, terms and agreements. Um, well, th this has been great. I actually, I don't have any further questions. I hope that, um, you got out a, a lot out of the conversation. Um, uh, do you have a timeline for, uh, the release of Virtuoso? So we're hoping, uh, to bring this to market later this year. Uh, 2019 is going to be a really big year. You know, we're going to be partnering with academic institutions and look very soon. I'll be announcing a board of advisors um, and really, really lucky to have this partnership with Social Safeguard that I do. Um, so thank you so much. And today's podcast discussion has been really fascinating and it was a wonderful, you know, thing for me to challenge some of the ideas and preconceptions that I have too. All right. Well, uh, thanks again. And uh, yes, please keep us in the loop on, on Virtuoso. Thank you. All right. Well, very good to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time, Evelyn. Thank you so much, George. Right. Bye. Bye now. That was fantastic. Yeah, really good uh, to hear from privacy experts. Um, and actually, speaking of privacy and security rights, some of the stories we're following this week, uh, Senator Markey from Massachusetts has introduced um, a bill in the Senate, uh, S-1214, which is a privacy bill of rights. I wonder if that has any similarities to the privacy bill that we've seen in California. Yeah. Or, and obviously, you know, the progenitor of all this GDPR. So I think we're just seeing the rising need for, um, or I guess perception that we need legislation to safeguard privacy and codify what exactly, um, I think were perceived to be rights, but now secure them in law. And even if they're not being passed through legislation, it's giving us a chance to educate people about their digital identity and why privacy is important. 
Yes. All right. Well, and also speaking of privacy, we have across the pond in the UK, the ICO or the Information Commissioner's Office uh, released a 16 uh, rule code um, that is now open for comment. And this code is targeting social media's, um, I guess what we'd say, sort of indirect data gathering and nudge technologies and particularly protecting under 18s from them. So for example, they see the ability to like posts as a form of information gathering, building on the interests of a particular profile. So they are discussing whether they need to impose limits on the number of likes. In other words, the amount of information they're gathering on, on what minors uh, like and their affinities, but also the nudge features like um, what Snapchat uses called streaks that kind of encourage people to use the platform daily. Um, and some other uh, elements in there about making sure that privacy settings are at the highest by default. So that's, that's another interesting development there. And then last but not least, there is a phishing scam sweeping through Instagram um, attached to what is called the nasty list. So people are getting DMs that appear to imply that you, the user, appear uh, on the nasty list and they direct you to a profile um, and it's that uh, the link in that profile that is the phishing link. So um, should you get any DMs from your friends, just know this. You are not on a nasty list. You are, in fact, not nasty at all. And remember, don't click a DM if you don't know who's sending it to you. That's right. Um, okay. And then uh, before we sign off, we're very excited because tomorrow we will be interviewing the one, the only, Miko Hyponen. Uh, cybersecurity titan, uh, ponytail extraordinaire. Um, we will be talking with him and just tune in for a future episode, uh, which we'll get on, on to the uh, uh, various listening platforms as soon as we can. Um, and then with that, we're signing off. Thanks as ever to our sound engineer, Abby Bruce and Matthias Zavaletti for our theme music. If you like what you hear, Please uh, like and subscribe to the podcast. Feel free to leave us a comment. Until then, stay safe, and we will see you in two weeks. 